0: Well, hi, everyone. I want to welcome you to our church. Good to have you here. We changed the backdrop, and I think that's kind of appropriate for what I wanted to tell you about today. In 1997, I saw a movie that rocked my world. I mean, it blew me away, and I've probably seen that movie at least 100 times since 1977. I learned just about every line. Like, uh, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Or, it's the ship that made the Kessel run in 12 Parsecs. Or, I just as soon kiss a Wookiee. I can arrange that. I just learned just about every line in that movie. And who can ever forget that amazing scene on the Death Star when Obi-Wan Kenobi went toe-to-toe with Darth Vader And the first ever lightsaber duel. Yeah, I'm talking about Star Wars. And it was this scene right here. Do you remember that? Well, I was crushed when Darth Vader cut down Obi-Wan Kenobi. And yes, he cut him down. And if you didn't know that because you've never seen Star Wars, well, shame on you. You know, when the world watched that fight scene, it had no idea what the backstory was that Obi-Wan actually had a relationship with Darth Vader going all the way back to the time when Darth Vader was a little boy named Anakin Skywalker. In fact, it wasn't until three movies later that we learned that Obi-Wan, in this picture on the right, look, took little Vader, Anakin Skywalker, under his wings and taught him the ways of the Force. And then, Anakin, as Anakin got older he started turning to the dark side. And their relationship soured, and it culminated, it climaxed in this epic battle on the planet, planet of Mustafa between master and apprentice. And Obi-Wan absolutely crushed Anakin, cut off his li- limbs, and left him on fire in the churning molten lava on that volcanic planet. And after Obi-Wan left, the sinister Palpatine showed up, rescued Anakin, and in order to save his life, he placed Anakin in this suit, and he became Darth Vader. You know, when the cinematic world saw Obi-Wan and Darth Vader fight for the very first time in 1977, it had no clue what the backstory was. In fact, it wasn't until 1999, 22 years later, after Star Wars Episode One came out, that we started to get a glimpse into their relationship. I could talk about this all day. You know, for about a month now, we've been um, in a series called The Hope of His Coming. And we've been examining the events of the last days. In the first message, I showed you these tiles to give you an idea of the order in which the end times will unfold. The timeline begins with Jesus, followed by the church age, which is where we find ourselves today. And then the kickoff event to the last days, and that's the rapture. And that's followed by the seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist will rise to power. And it will end, that seven years will end in the battle of Armageddon. And just when Israel is about to be wiped out by the enemies of God, Jesus comes. Pastor Greg covered that last week. And then the second coming is followed by the millennium. And then it's all wrapped up with the new Jerusalem. If you missed any of these messages, I'm going to encourage you to go to our YouTube channel, SBCC Live, and get caught up. You can just go to YouTube and just search SBCC Live. And... And as I was thinking about this weekend's message, it occurred to me that we have never given you the backstory to the last days. You may not even know that there's a backstory. Believe it or not, just like in Star Wars, there is a there is an incredible backstory to the last days. And rather than just jump to the next tile, which we'll get to next week, I thought I'd fill you in on the backstory. Uh, so grab your Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 23, that's the third book in the, in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and Le- Leviticus, Leviticus 23. Grab something to write on and something to write with, uh, open up our South Bay Community Church app. If you don't have it, get it, I would encourage you to get it. I think it's gonna, you're going to find it very helpful as we go through these points today and all the scr- scriptures are listed for you as well. And then just, again, search on, go to the Apple Store, the Google Play Store, and search for South Bay Community Church or SBCC, and it should pop right up. I want to ask you to hold on to your hats, because you're going to learn some new things today, and I think it might even rock your world, all right? So let me open up our time in prayer, and then we'll get started. Well, Heavenly Father, it is so good to be here together today. Thank you for church, and thank you for all that you're doing in our world. you Even though we see the devil at work, we see you more at work, and we see you doing greater things. And I ask, God, that today you would speak to each and every one of us. I pray you would teach us something new and something exciting that would inspire us, that would motivate us to live the way you would want us to live. So, God, speak to us now, and I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Leviticus chapter 23. I hope you found it. Leviticus 23 was believed to have been written by Moses around 1,400 to 1,440 years before Christ, all right? So about 1,400 years before Christ. The chapter, this particular chapter, has been called the calendar of sacred times. It's been dubbed the calendar of sacred times. One Bible, actually, the Evangelical Heritage Version Bible calls this chapter the calendar of holy times, And I think it's a fitting title because it gives us a glimpse uh, into the future. It's like a calendar into the future. And it serves as the backdrop for the end times. Now, here's how it begins. Uh, Verse 1, Leviticus 23, verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So in, this very, in these very first two verses, we see that God gave the Jews some appointed feasts, seven all together. He gave them some feasts. Now, here was the purpose behind the giving of the feasts or these festivals, according to the Apostle Paul. Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul wrote, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in, in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so Paul said that these festivals or these feasts are shadows. They are a shadow of things to come. So in verse 17, underline shadow of the things to come. They were a foreshadow, like a calendar of events as to what was going to happen. And then if you go back to Leviticus, starting in verse 5, God spells out seven feasts or festivals, all right? And let me go over them with you one by one. The first one is Passover. The first feast is Passover, found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5. It says, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover, right? So according to the Hebrew calendar, the first month of the year is Nisan. It is Nisan. And by the way, their months are different from our months. Their month begins in the middle of a month, and it goes to the next month, to the middle of that next month. And so our month kind of overlaps their two months. So their first, their first month overlaps our two months, and that would, be, would correspond to March and April. All right? So it corresponds to March and April. So on the 14th day of Nisan is the Passover. Circle the word Passover. Passover can be traced back to the time when the Jews were in bondage to Egyptians. God sent Moses to Egypt to free them, and, but Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. You might remember that. And to force Pharaoh's hand, God sent ten plagues upon Egypt. And the very last plague, the tenth plague, was, the, was that the angel of death would visit every home in Egypt and take the life of the firstborn child so that God wouldn't take the life of the firstborn child of those who were Jews, they were told, the Jews were told, that if they took a sacred, perfect lamb and they sacrificed it and placed the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes and on the lintel, which, we, that, which would be that, that beam that goes across the doorpost, that, that death would pass, the angel of death would pass over their home and their firstborn wouldn't die. And so that's what the Jews did. And so their firstborn was saved, were saved, but the firstborn of every Egyptian household, they, they were killed. They sprinkled that blood on the doorpost. Now, in Leviticus Bil- 23, Moses told the Jews to remember what God did by observing the Passover. And ever since that time, ever since the very first Passover in Egypt, the Jews have been celebrating this feast to remember what God did. And they do so on the 14th of Nisan. Now, remember what Paul said about the feast? They are a shadow of things to come. They're a shadow of things to come. Approximately 1,400 years after that very first Passover, guess what happened? Jesus, the Son of God, came to planet Earth. And he was crucified on the Passover, on the 14th of Nisan, according to God's appointed time. And and the shedding of his blood made it possible for God's wrath to pass over his people. And thus Christ became the Passover lamb. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul said, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Jesus became our Passover lamb. And in the truest sense of the word, the Passover feast was fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Christ died. It was fulfilled. The second feast is found in verse 6. Take a look at Leviticus 23, verse 6. And it says, On the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. All right, so circle unleavened bread. On the fourteenth day was the Passover. On the fifteenth day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place the very next day after the Passover. The two feasts basically ran together. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for seven days, the Jews were not to eat anything that contained leaven or yeast. And it was a reminder to them that when they escaped Egypt, they had to do so very quickly so that if they were baking bread, for example, they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They just had to grab it and run. And that's what they did. And thus, unleavened bread came to be known as the bread of affliction because it was baked, it was made out of affliction. Deuteronomy 16, verse 3 says, Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread. To remember what God did, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you might remember the time of your departure from Egypt. A second thing that the Jews did during this feast was to get rid of any leaven that was in their home. If there was any leaven in their home, they had to completely remove it from their presence because leaven symbolized corruption and it symbolized sin. Paul said in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole up. In other words, a little bit of sin makes everything sinful. And so they had to get rid of, during this feast, they had to get rid of any leaven that might have been in their house. And once again, the feast was a foreshadowing of what was to come and it was fulfilled in Jesus because first of all, he was sinless. He was without any leaven. First John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin. Second, he was the bread of life. It says that in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. And third, he was the bread of affliction. Isaiah 53 says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, spent by God, and afflicted. Jesus was afflicted. And so in every way. Jesus was the fulfillment of the second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third feast was the Feast of First Fruits. And it immediately followed the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They came back to back. So the Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. All right, they went back to back. This feast is found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 10 and 11. Take a look at verse 10 and 11. And it says here Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And we shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. And on the day after the Sabbath, the priest priest shall wave it. The idea behind this priest was that the Jews were to give the very first part of their barley harvest, their barley harvest to the Lord. God got the first fruits. And once again, this Feast was fulfilled in Christ. Here's what Paul wrote about in um, in 1 Corinthians 15 concerning the first fruits. He wrote in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So underline raised from the dead and then circle the word first fruits. And then notice this, this last phrase, those who have fallen asleep, refers to dead people. Paul was, Paul was saying that Jesus' resurrection. Was uh, from the dead was the first fruit. It's the first fruit, meaning he was the first one to rise from the dead and his resurrection will be followed by ours. It will be followed by many, many more resurrections. Romans 6, 5, Paul said, for if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Meaning one day, all the dead in Christ will rise. Now, we know that when we die, we go immediately into God's presence. But what happens to our bodies? Our bodies don't go to heaven. Our bodies get buried. They get cremated. Sometimes they're even lost at sea. Who knows what, right? But one day, our bodies will be resurrected, and we will. our bodies will meet our spirits, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. And so there will be a resurrection, our resurrection. But Jesus was the first. He was the first fruits. And so the third feast, of firstfruits was fulfilled in Christ. The fourth feast, the fourth feast is the feast of weeks, or pa- or Pentecost. And it's found in Leviticus chapter twenty-three, verse fifteen and sixteen. And it says here, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, and from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, that would be the the first uh, feast of first fruits, you shall count fifty days to the day after after the seventh sabbath and then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the lord all right so here's what this is saying during the 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 feast during this feast the jews dedicated the first fruits of their wheat not barley but their wheat harvest to the lord now according to this passage the feast of weeks took place 50 days, 50 days after the Feast of first Firstfruits. What happened on the Feast of first fruits? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. That was the resurrection. He rose from the dead on the Feast of Firstfruits. What happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Well, according to Scripture, he appeared to his followers for 40 days. For 40 days, he wandered that Galilean area, that Palestine area. Um, and then, after, on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven. And then 10 days later, what happened? On the 50th day... He sent the Holy Spirit down to earth, and the church was born, right? This all happened on the Feast of Weeks. It happened on the Feast of Weeks, and thus the church was born on the Feast of Weeks, and it was fulfilled. But the writer of the book of Acts doesn't refer to this day as the day of the Feast of Weeks. He refers to it as the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost means fifty, and it happened fifty days after the resurrection of Christ, and so you can you can also make that and make note of this that on the fourth feast, the feast of weeks or Pentecost, was fulfilled in Christ. So God gave us seven feasts. He gave us seven feasts as a foreshadow of things to come. The feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of first fruits, the feast of weeks or Passover—they were all fulfilled in Christ. Now. Um, you might not have noticed, I hope you notice this, but I hope you might not have noticed that those first four feasts all take place in the spring. They all take place in the spring. They've all been fulfilled. There are three more feasts. All right, let's get to those. There are three more feasts. And this is, this is where it gets really interesting, so stay with me. These next three feasts are all in the fall. They're all in the fall. First four are all in the spring. These next three are all in, this, in the fall. The fifth feast is the Feast of Trumpets. Found in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. You can write that one down. It's the Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, 23, and 24 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a, a memorial proc- proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. All right, so stop right there. The Feast of Trumpets took place on the first day of the seventh month. Now based on the Hebrew calendar, the seventh month is called Tishri, which corresponds to our September and October. Again, remember, their month would start in the middle of a month, our middle of our month, and go to the next uh, month to the middle of the next month. And so Tishri, the seventh month, corresponds with the middle of September to the middle of October. That's their Hebrew calendar. And according to their Hebrew calendar, the first day of Tishri would be our September 19th. That would be next Saturday. And the day, because their day runs from sundown to sundown, the this particular day, the, the Feast of Trumpets would actually start from sundown on Friday next next Friday. And of course it's not this is California time, not Israel time, but it would start from sundown on Friday. Uh, to sundown, it would end on sundown on Sunday, the 20th. So it's coming up. It's coming, it's just less, less than a week away. Now, in Hebrew, the Feast of Trumpets is called Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah, it means a day of shouting or blasting. A day of shouting or blasting. Well, that's exactly what happens according to verse 24. Which says that the Feast of Trumpets is a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets. Now, the trumpets here are not, that I mentioned here, are not the brass trumpets that we're familiar with, played at high school football games and college football games by their bands. It would be the shofar, which was a ram's horn. It would look something like this. Now, this feast, the Feast of Trumpets, was not only accompanied by the blast of the shofar, but it was accompanied by much soul-searching and repentance as a reminder to the Jews that Judgment Day was coming. So it is associated with judgment. And like the four spring feasts, the fall feasts are a shadow of things to come. Now, as we look at history, uh, I think it's pretty conclusive that this particular feast has yet to be fulfilled. It has not been fulfilled. And here's what's interesting. The Bible says that one day the trumpets will sound when Christ comes down to take his church home in the event that we call the rapture. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16, Paul wrote, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then all those who are alive will will follow after. And then here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 about that very same event, the rapture. He said in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. All right, and so according to Scripture, the rapture will be announced by the blast of the shofar. Now next, take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 31. And he wrote this concerning the second coming. This is a completely different event. Remember, we studied this. It's a completely different event. Remember, the rapture occurs at the beginning of the seven year tribulation period the second coming occurs at the end of the second uh, end of the seven year tribulation period here's what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 30 he said and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory this is the second coming and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one heaven one end of heaven to the other all right so the second coming will also be accompanied by the sound, by the blowing of the shofar, the blowing of the trumpet. And when this trumpet is blown, all those believers, all of us who have been raptured and taken up into heaven, will be gathered from the four corners of the world, the four corners in the universe, and we'll gather together and we'll be with Christ. And then we we will join him when he returns back to earth. But the Bible is clear. The shofar will be blown at the rapture, And at the second coming. And since the Feast of Trumpets has yet to be fulfilled, it begs this mind-boggling question, could the rapture or the second coming and or the second coming take place on the Feast of Trumpets, thereby fulfilling this feast? Wow, chew on that one. The sixth feast is the Day of Atonement. Gets even more interesting, all right? Stay with me, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 26 says, and 27 says this, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this 7th month, that would be the 7th month, is Tishri, the 10th day, the 7th month, is the Day of Atonement. And it shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves... That basic, the word afflict means basically to humble yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. All right, and so in verse 27, underlying Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement in Hebrew is Yom Kippur, and it is considered the holiest day of the year for Jews. It takes place on the 10th day in the month of Tishri, which, as I said, is coming up uh, next weekend. It follows the Feast of Trumpets, which is the first of Tishri. Now, if you look at Leviticus chapter 16, it gives us a lot more detail into the Day of Atonement. So turn turn to your left in your Bible to chapter 16. Let me quickly summarize it for you, and then I'll read some some verses here. But on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest, and that would have been Aaron uh, when this was written, Aaron would enter the temple of God. He would enter the temple of God, and then he would go on this day, on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Yom Kippur, He would enter the temple of God and he would go into the Holy of Holies, which was the inner sanctum of the temple. And that's where God's presence was found. Here's a model of the inner sanctum as as folks believe, scholars believe it might have looked like. This is kind of a a look down into the inner sanctum of the temple. And then the actual Holy of Holies was located behind, was in that area behind the curtain there. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now, here's another view of it. This is a side view of it. The reason the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement was to offer a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins. To atone means to repair or to, uh, or to make right a wrong. The high priest would do this only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, only on Yom Kippur. Now, in order for him to enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest had to first purify himself. He had to cleanse himself because he was a sinner like everyone else. And he did this by sacrificing a bull for himself and his family. And then here's what he did next. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 17. Pay attention to this. This is really good. And then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Right? So in verse 8, circled two goats, and then underline this, underline one lot for the Lord, and then underline the other lot for Azazel. So Aaron would take, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron would go into the uh, temple. He would take two goats. One was for the Lord, and the other was for Azazel. Right? Now, according to verse 9, the goat for the Lord was a sin offering. Right? Therefore, Aaron would take this goat, he would kill it, and take the blood of the goat, and then he would take it inside the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the goat in front of the mercy seat, and on top of the mercy seat, the mercy seat was the cover to the Ark of the Covenant. And by doing so, he would atone for the people's sins, On the Day of Atonement, so let me summarize. On the Day of Atonement, you have goat number one. Goat number one is killed. Blood is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the the mercy seat. And the sins of the people are atoned for. Question, has has this feast been fulfilled? Well, yes and no. It's been fulfilled because Christ died to make atonement for our sins. Hebrews 9.26 says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in a sense, it has been fulfilled. But then what about goat number two? Because the Day of Atonement has two parts to it. Goat number one, goat number two. Right. So what about goat number two? Well, here's what we know about goat number two, and that's Azazel. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. And Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. That's Azazel, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions and all their sins. And shall and he shall put on, uh, put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And verse 22 says, And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. You can stop there. So Aaron, the high priest, would lay his hands on the head of Azazel, this goat, and he would confess over it all the sins of the people. He put it all on the goat. And then someone would take that goat from Aaron and dispatch it, into the wilderness, completely removing it from having any contact with people, never to be seen again. Now, in this passage, azazel is often translated scapegoat. And if I were to guess, I'd say 95% of Bible teachers believe that azazel represents Jesus, or azazel is symbolic of Jesus. And all the sins are placed on Jesus, or this goat, and it is sent away Therefore our sins are sent, it's a picture of our sins being sent away. And Jesus is our scapegoat. That's always been, that's always what I've been taught, and that's always been my understanding. But here's what I don't get when I study this passage. If Azazil is for the Lord like goat number one is, if it is symbolic of Jesus, then why doesn't it say that? Why doesn't it say that? Well, here's what I found in my study this week. And I spent hours trying to figure this out. First, azazil is one of the most difficult Hebrew words to translate. And one reason is because Leviticus 16 is the only place this word is found. It's the only place where it's found. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. And in fact, the Jewish encyclopedia, not a Christian encyclopedia, the Jewish encyclopedia said that azazil enjoys the distinction of being the most mysterious, here's what they said, extra-human character, extra-human character in sacred literature. It is the, the most mysterious extra-human character in, in sacred literature. Second, I learned that not everyone believes that goat number two symbolizes Jesus. Now, I'd never heard that before. There are some scholars who believe that Azazel actually represents the devil. According to German theologian Wilhelm Jesanias, who wrote this Hebrew lexicon, he said that Azazel is a demon. According to Moses ben Naaman, who was considered the greatest Talmudic scholar of the 13th century, Azazel belonged to a class of goat-like demons. Origen, who was an early Christian scholar, famous guy, identified Azazel with Satan. And there are others who believe Azazel symbolizes the devil. There are others who believe that as well. And they believe and they believe that the reason why the high priest on the Day of Atonement would place all of the sins uh, of the people on Azazel and then send it out in the wilderness was to first symbolically saddle the devil, saddle the devil, place the on the devil, all of the responsibility and blame for man's wickedness, evil, and sin. Second, by sending Azazel away, this goat away, it was for the purpose of symbolically ridding Jewish society of the presence of evil once and for all. That's why it is believed that the high priest did what he did. The question that we're faced with is, has this portion or this part of the day of atonement been fulfilled i mean i'm not even sure how it would be fulfilled but has it been fulfilled well i don't think so it doesn't appear to be have been fulfilled we certainly can't point to any kind of event and say this has been fulfilled not like the other like not like the first four and so we can say that you can't say that if something is partially filled you can't say that it's been fulfilled so we've just got to say The sixth feast, the day of atonement, has not been fulfilled. It may have been fulfilled. That first part of it might have been fulfilled when Christ died for us, but the second part, goat number two, hasn't been fulfilled. Therefore, let me show you how it might be fulfilled. When Jesus returns to earth at the second coming, he is going to be accompanied by an angel who is going to do something absolutely extraordinary. Take a look at Revelation 20 and verse 1. The Apostle John wrote, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. That's the devil. The dragon is a reference to the devil. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. The angel bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, we're not going to tear this whole thing apart until next week. But for our purposes today, the angel is going to have a key to the bottomless pit, the abyss. This is not hell, right? It's a different place. And the angel, when he comes down with Christ, is going to seize the devil. He's going to seize him. And the devil bears ultimate responsibility for the sins of man. He was the one who brought it all on, who brought... And, and since he's, the devil's been around, he has brought nothing but despair and misery and brokenness and heartbreak to mankind. And the angel is going to bind him and cast him into the pit where he, and then he will seal that pit and shut it and completely remove the devil from our presence. And afterward, it, he will be thrown in the lake of fire. Like Azazel, the devil will be completely removed from mankind's presence. And so, it begs the question, could this possibly be the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of the Day of Atonement? Well, we will see. The seventh and final feast is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. You can write Feast of Tabernacles there. It's Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. Hebrews 23, Leviticus 23 in verse 33 and 34 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, we're still in the month of Tishri, it all happens in the fall, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. And if you jump down to verse 42, it tells us what happened on that day, and you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, so during this feast, which took place in the month of Tishri, the Jews were to construct these booths. They were like pop-up tents. They might look like this, right? And I don't think there's any, they don't have to look the same, but kind of a general idea here. And they are to live in them, they are to live in them for seven days as a reminder that uh, that God was with them when they wandered in the desert for 40 years. That they had these booths to live in. And one more time, this feast has not been fulfilled. You know, feast number five has not been fulfilled. Feast number six has not been fulfilled. Feast number seven has not been fulfilled. But one day it will be. One day it will be when God comes to tabernacle with His people. And dwell with us, that's you and me, forever and and ever. And that will happen during the millennium, uh, after the second coming, will happen uh, when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. And we'll get into that in just a couple weeks. But let me leave you with this. This this verse gives me goosebumps. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, this is a promise that God is coming to live with us. God is coming to dwell with us. He is coming to tabernacle with us. And I believe it will happen on the Feast of Tabernacles. It will all be fulfilled. So be mindful of the feasts. Be mindful of God's calendar as you look at the last days. There are seven feasts, seven feasts, according to God's calendar. There are four spring feasts, and they've all been fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And then there are three fall feasts, none of which have been fulfilled. That's the backstory. Let's close our time in prayer. Father it is absolutely amazing how your scriptures all come together and it all makes sense it is amazing that even with regards to the future there is a backstory connected Of the past. And Father, these feasts that you gave 3,400 years ago, one day they will all be fulfilled. We've seen four of the seven fulfilled in Christ, and the final three will also be fulfilled in Christ. Father, we don't know when that will be, but I pray that you would help us as a church. That You would help us as your people to be vigilant, to be ready, to to give an answer for our faith. Help us to be ready to appear before you. Help us to follow you with all of our hearts. And Father, thank you for your word. It excites me to no end, God, to see how everything works out and will work out just the way you planned it everything that we're going through today, everything that's going on in the world today is according to your plan. And one day these feasts will be fulfilled and we will be taken up to be with you and there will be a second coming and Satan will be bound and you will come to live with us. Thank you, Father, for those amazing and marvelous truths. Help us to keep following you until all these things place. We thank you, Father, and we praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.